Hello, welcome to Making the Hedge Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we're talking about hyperdispensationalism with Corin, and uh, we'll get into some of the intricate the intricate details on that. So stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. The point is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. Well, the question my... that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right. Well, well welcome back to Making the Hedge Apologetics. It's been a while since we've been together. Um, you know what? Life just kind of goes at you sometimes, and uh, that's what's happened to me for about... I don't know, I think it's probably been uh, the middle of March since I did our last live stream, but, uh, you know, and honestly, tonight, uh, talking about hyper-dispensationalism or uh, dispensationalism in general, uh, you know, there's a, it's, it's a big topic. There's a, a, the majority of Christians um, have got a dispensational point of view, whether they know it or not, and uh, that's, that's something that we've really been trying to work out the details on when we can and uh, when we can work out this particular conversation. Um, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight is what we call hyper-dispensationalism, uh, ultra-dispensationalism, and just what uh, is commonly called classic dispensationalism. And uh, I think that we'll start by just giving an introduction to our guest. His name is Corin. We have uh, talked online multiple times. Uh, but Corin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on tonight, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, so it's been, kind of been in the works. Um, I had to cancel on you the last time something came up, and uh, you are more more than willing to reschedule, so I appreciate you being gracious on that end and uh, just uh, allowing us to reschedule this thing and, and make it happen. But um, there's a lot to talk about here. I, I think that you and I have obviously got some differences on what we believe about uh, mm -hmm. the hermeneutic <laughs> style of interpret interpreting the Bible through a dispensational lens. Uh, which that's what dispensationalism no, dispensationalism is, is a, a, a style of interpretation. So, um, but Corin, I'd like to um, kind of get to know you a little bit um, and how you got into studying dispensationalism because it's not com it's 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 not so much something that most people would be familiar with when you throw that term out that they're like, oh yeah, well, I'm this type of dispensationalist, or yeah, I'm definitely a dispensationalist, or really get into the intricate details of, of what, what that study is. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, how you, in particular, got into the study of dispensationalism and how you arrived where you did. 
Well, I picked up a Peter Ruckman book, and uh, I just believed it is gospel truth, Josh. No, I'm I'm totally okay. kidding. Man. But that's that's to, that's what they say most of the time. They just like you just believe everything Ruckman says. But no, um, I heard because I used to be a Stephen Anderson follower. Okay. I believed pretty much everything he preached. So. So are you post trib or mid trib? Well, I, yeah, I was post trib, pre wrath, whatever they want to call it. You yeah. know. And, uh, are you pre-trib now? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I no didn't mean to interrupt that. you, man. So you were you were saying about dispensationalism. Uh, so I watched the debate between Tommy McMurtry and Andrew Sluter, and I watched it a couple times. Like at first, I was on the when I was on the Anderson side or whatever, I was like, oh, "This guy's this guy's crazy, man. Like he's an idiot. What is he talking about?" But then, like I watched that debate over and over and over again. And then I've just seen like different stuff in the Bible. It's like, how do I make this fit into eternal security, you know, uh, faith alone, stuff like that? And so just one night I was uh, I was in the book of Luke and I was just like, I prayed to God. I was like, God, if, if there's something you want me to see, like show me. So I read from Luke 1 to the end of Luke 3. And by the end of Luke chapter 3, I was like, well... I, I believe dispensationalism is true. And I didn't know all the intricate parts then, but I was just like, there's something different within the Gospels than there is right now. So, And then from there, I just uh, looked up different types of dispensationalism, like uh, obviously Ruckman, um, Justin Johnson, Grace Ambassadors, uh, Justin Knox, just different guys who call themselves Acts 2 or Mid-Acts mid Dispensationalists. Yeah, so... Which, that kind of actually transitions into what I wanted to do from the beginning, and that's to de define what dispensationalism is. And, and I think that you kind of gave um, more of a, a, an analogy or a picture of, of how you came to understand that there are some differences um, within the Bible of different dispensations, and, and you saying, hey, you know what, I think I'm a dispensationalist. Um, and, and all of that kind of keyed from you listening to that debate between Tommy McMurtry and Andrew Sluter. So um, I, more than likely, that's kind of uh, your introduction. Was that your introduction, dispensationalism, was watching that video? Uh, yeah, and then just, yeah. I mean, pretty much, like, just hearing different stuff about the opposing side or whatever. Yeah. Because when, when you're a Stephen Anderson follower, you don't, you don't listen to the opposing side. You don't take that into consideration. Yeah. Which, but I wouldn't get that, so... Yeah, and I think that's a shame. Um, I think that we really uh, need to challenge ourselves and our beliefs by not just sitting in an echo chamber and doing kind of what we're doing here tonight, which, um, to be honest with you, that's really why I started this this channel in the first place, was um, just to engage with folks that, that I talk to online on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, whatever the social platform, so that we can actually have a means to have a video conference or whether we, we want to do a debate or a discussion or an, an interview style or whatever, just make it happen and talk and, you know, challenge each other's worldviews and maybe point out some things that you may have right and some things that I might, I might have right or I might have wrong and, and, uh, and to, you know, just really get, get a little deeper study in the Bible. So um, that's what yeah. we're going to do tonight. Uh, so I'd like to start just by kind of defining what dispensationalism is. I've done a couple videos on dispensational dispensationalism in the past. Um, I was I had uh, been conversing with Doug Stoffer um, about doing a series on his his book One Book Rightly Divided, uh, 
and uh, he obviously has a lot to say on it. It's about 900 and some odd pages, and uh, it's all about dispensationalism. Uh, but he doesn't. He doesn't draw. Um, he doesn't take the stance of a hyper dispensationalist, or what he calls and is commonly called an ultra dispensationalist. Some some guys online thought that I, I made that term up, which I didn't. <laughs> but no, mm, I didn't. They're ultra dispensationalists. And actually, you laid it out. Um, and, and just what you were talking about and how you got into dispensationalism is uh, the real difference is uh, a classic dispensationalist would say, you know, the church began Acts 2, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down. Uh, a mid-Acts dispensationalist is what you call a hyper-dispensationalist. They're typically Acts 15. Some people would say Acts 9, 13, whenever Paul actually got his commission. Uh, but then you got guys like Bollinger and Stam and O'Hare who would take the ultra-dispensationalist perspective and say... Well, the church didn't actually begin until after Acts 28. So, you know, depending on where you stand with that, I, and, and we, the more we get into uh, some of the details on the questions that I've got for you and how you arrived at the answers that you've got to these questions, we may, we may be able to, um, you know, kind of, we'll just see how deep we can go on it. But for those of you who are watching and have, have never even heard of the word, uh, dispensationalism is simply uh, different divisions within the word of God. Um, it's also, the Greek word or the Greek form of it is oikonomia, and uh, it's just another way of saying economy. So when we, when we look at the differences, most obviously, between uh, Old Testament and New Testament, there's one division right there. So there's a natural division within the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're looking at the intricate sides of the economy uh, that God has set up um, to rule and reign, um, within his economy, and specifically de dealing with salvation. So, um, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? How do people get saved in the New Testament? Are there some differences, and uh, can we break those down? That's what dispensationalism, dispensationalism attempts to answer, is applying that hermeneutic, that style of interpretation, and applying it to the scripture to say, you know what, this is the difference here compared to what we're looking at over here. And uh, then you can you can really take off from there. But before we get into it, Corn, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, a lot of people say that when we say the word dispensation and the meaning of it, they they strictly say it that it's just a, a period of time, and that's not true. It's not just strictly a period of time. A period of time is implied into it, but it's something that God has dispensed to man with instructions. And that can change for different periods of time. That's why we have different dispensations. Yeah, you're right. That's that's yeah. a good point, man. Uh, you know, and that uh, to me, it's I don't know. That's where you get into the the more intricate details of what it actually is. Because most people, when you say dispensation, would just think of it as a period of time. So yeah, that's a but. that's a good way to break it down. Uh, let me pull up some questions here. This, uh, a lot of these things. I mean, we've never talked on the phone. We've never, we've never really interacted before, other than online and social media. So, um, some of the things I, I'd like to start right from square one, if we can, because um, one of the things that kind of troubled me about uh, what your position may be on dispensationalism uh, and how I would like to understand it more is when you say that you wouldn't actually identify as a Christian. So, the first question that I've got to you would be. Are you a Christian? Do you identify as a Christian? Why or why not? Um, I mean, I don't really have a problem with the term. Like, obviously, in the Bible, the people who call, who called the people who followed Christ Christians were the antagonists. 
And they didn't know the difference, like you said on Twitter. They didn't know the difference between, you know, I guess what I would believe is kingdom group versus the body of Christ. So, I, I mean, if someone wants to call themselves a Christian, I mean, I don't, I don't, um, I mean, they were called Christians just because, you know, they followed Christ or whatever. They followed Christ's yeah, teaching. Um, but I, so- I don't, I mean, I would, I guess I would call myself, call myself a Christian, like, I just don't like grouping myself in with, that's just like saying, well, I'm a Catholic because Catholic means universal. Like, just the term Catholic means universal. But, like, that you just grouped yourself into something that you don't, like, believe. And if you group yourself into to, to the term Christ, uh, Christian or Christendom, I mean, people think you might be, you know, a Pentecostal, a Lutheran. I mean, there's so many denominations of Christian. It's just, like, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll be called a Christian if, uh, if anyone wants to call me Christian. But. No, I hear you. Um, yeah, so if you want to, be, so now we're gonna we're gonna get into a little bit more of the detail on that because they were first called Christian in Acts eleven twenty six, so that's right. before a mid Acts beginning of the church. So um, I guess I guess what I'm really asking is because online you said you wouldn't call yourself Christian, but if people want to identify as a Christian, that's fine. You don't have a problem with it. That's what the antagonist called them, and and that's true. Um, a Christian simply means little Christ, and it probably more than likely did originate from an antagonistic um, perspective on uh, mocking the people who followed Christ. There's no doubt about that. But my question to you is: It do you take it, do you take a mid Acts starting point for the church, or are you post Acts 28? Where where do you start the church? Um, I, I mean, I would say I'm mid Acts, okay. Acts nine. So, if that's the case, then um, I I think it's a little more consistent for you to really say, like, hey, I wouldn't identify as a Christian, which you you said, if you want to call me that, that's fine, because most people do, and compared it to uh, people calling each other a Catholic or Catholicism, but obviously you recognize that there's a huge difference between that, but, um, so, I, I guess my question is, is that consistent with your worldview of the starting point of Acts 15 to say that you are a Christian? Uh, what do you mean by Acts 15? Because I, I said Acts 9. Oh, did you say Acts 9? I yeah, said 15. yeah. Okay. So Acts, Acts 9, well, when Paul got saved, and why would yes. you take Acts 9? <laughs> All right. Do you want to go there? Yeah. We like to go there on Acts 9? Yeah. All right. So we take uh, the Acts 9 position, people who are mid-Acts, because in 1 Timothy, you can just go to Acts 9, but in 1 Timothy, uh, if I can get there, I'm going to keep going to Hebrews. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse uh, 15 Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all exception, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So he's saying, I am first. And he says in verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should believe here, or which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So that's why we believe that the body of Christ started with Paul. 
because he said it twice, I am chief and I am first. And then he said, in me, Jesus Christ would show a pattern to them who believe on life everlasting. Okay, so my first question is, um, that's interesting. That's not a question. But um, when, when Paul says that of whom I am chief, you think that means that he was first. He was the first sinner. Not that he's the first sinner, but he was the first sinner saved by grace. Okay. So, because if you look at the gospel, if you look in the gospels, Jesus Christ said, "Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends." Yeah. Okay. Paul was not a friend of God. Paul's an enemy. Right. Yeah. When he got on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ appeared to him, and he was like, "I chosen uh, you're a chosen vessel unto me, yep. to be a witness uh, for my name's sake unto all nations." Yeah, but that doesn't mean That's that. I mean, just because Christ revealed himself to Paul that way, which he did to many people, by the way, including all the other disciples, um, and over 500 witnesses saw him at his resurrection as well. Um, but before we transition to that side of it, um, I, I, I guess my, my biggest question is about, about... Hold that thought. I wanted to tie that back back into why you start the the beginning of the church in Acts nine to why you would call yourself Christian. So um, you would obviously now that you would say that the the church started with Paul in Acts nine, that it is consistent for you to be called a Christian in Acts eleven twenty six. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. So do you accept all of the Pauline epistles as doctrine for the church? Uh, Romans through Philemon. Every epistle that he wrote, including the prison Sure, epistles. but there's stuff in Paul's epistles that don't apply to the body of Christ. Okay. It, I'd like to get in more detail on that as we go. Um, but I'd like to... So, in, in particular, I I think that you could be... See, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if you, if, if you could be classified a hyper-dispensationalist or not. Um, because Even though you... I, I guess technically you could just because... The classic dispensationalist position is Acts two, um, and putting it in Acts nine with Paul kind of disregards everything up to that point um, as applicable to the church. But one of the things that I really wanted to to kind of get us going on would be repentance and confession. So one one conversation that we had online, and uh, this is from uh, B. W. Shank. He says, "Josh, I know it's an uh, evangelical thing, but it's bad theology." Uh, we're talking about uh, repentance, and we're talking about confession of your sins. And uh, he goes on, he says, Sin confessing is not part of the body of Christ's doctrine. That's Israel's doctrine. That's because God hasn't forgiven them of all their sins yet, but all of our sins are already forgiven past, present, and future. So my response was, and I'd like to get your take on this, because I don't think you and I have really talked about it a whole lot, was um, part of repentance is not just a change of mind. Yeah, you do have a change of mind, but it's also confessing your sins to God. Now, does that mean that you have to confess every intricate sin? No, it has to be a broken and contrite heart, uh, and God will not despise that. There's no doubt about it. In fact, David wrote that in Psalm 51. But in regard to repentance and salvation, Paul even preached repentance and salvation post-Acts 9. Uh, so my question to you is, do you take the same position as B.W. Shank and say that there's no need for repentance uh, to a Christian and there's no need for confession to confess your sins to God. 
Uh, repentance as far as what? Just repentance in general. Repenting towards oh, Yeah, I God. believe in repentance. Okay. What, I mean, you like, what are you... You're asking if I believe in repentance? Yeah, I believe in repentance. See, you know what? And I'm trying to figure out the, the difference between you and, and B.W. Shank, because I think he, oh, uh, or Salt, whatever you want to call a lot, so I think he's just messing with you, man. <laughs> no, I honestly... I, I think that he does take a uh, an ultra-dispensationalist position, because... He rejects some of the Pauline epistles and says, "Well, uh, the prison epistles is all that he would he would actually take as doctrine for the church and directly applicable to the church, which no, is no, no. Yeah, he actually said that to me. He did. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or two days ago, he said that 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 was wrong to me. I asked him about it because I, I ordered a book. Uh, what is it? Charles Welch, the guy who is he wrote a book about, called Dispensational Truth." And he's Acts 28 or whatever. I was like, hey, what do you think about Acts 28 or And he was yeah. like, I think they're wrong. You know, I think the body of Christ started See, uh, this in is Acts why, 9. This is one of the reasons why I'd like to get him him on, which I've asked him, you know, a few times, but just hadn't worked out. But maybe we'll get him on, and we could get that cleared up. That's why I like to kind of open the dialogue on yeah. that. But So you don't have a problem with re repentance. Do you have any issues with confessing your sins to God? Um... I mean, there's no instruction in Paul and epistles about it. I mean, if you look in, what is it, Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 7, Paul's sitting there talking about the struggle with sin, the whole chapter. And then he says, um, in verse 24 in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh of uh, the law of sin. So he's saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm a sinner, but I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. And then in uh, Romans chapter 8, the whole context is about uh, the children of God um, wanting to be raptured because their bodies are so, it's, it's evil flesh. And he says in and, um, what is it? I can find it. <clears throat> verse, what, 25? Or verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our, infirmity, our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself making an intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So he said right there that we don't even know what we pray for. When it, it comes to our infirmities in the flesh. But if you look at confessing of sins, I mean, you see it's Israel doing it. It's Old Testament Israel. It's New Testament Israel doing it. Paul never teaches that. Um, so I, th I think that he does, but I think that you would re reject the premise that he does be because of the way that you would divide the Bible. Um, some people, including Doug Stoffer in his book, One Book Rightly Divided, he gives a definition of uh, a hyper-ultra as someone who just over-divides the Word of God to a point that it, it kind of really obliterates any meaning or application to anybody. Um, especially when we, we're talking about Paul and confession of sin um, in Romans chapter 10, because I, I don't think there's any way that you could actually argue that Paul doesn't teach confession of sin. When in Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10, he says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, and, and if, if thou shalt confess with thy heart, and if thou shalt believe in thy heart and confess with thy mouth, um, you'll be saved. So I think that that's something that Paul clearly teaches, uh, but you you probably wouldn't take the position that, that was written to 
to you? How would you how would you work that out? You're saying Romans ten is uh, confessing sins. Yeah, it actually says that. In Romans ten. Yes. I'll just read In it. In Roman, Romans ten nine and ten. Yep. Says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For if the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Where is confession of sins in that passage? Well, he says you're, confess, you're confessing the mouth uh, with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Yeah, you're right. That's why you're confessing with the mouth of the Lord Jesus? Because you believe that God hath raised him from the dead. The reason why. Because in Romans chapter 1, it literally says, it says, uh, what is it? Uh, verse 3 in Romans 1, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So, you believe that God raised him from the dead, and the reason why uh, God raised him from the dead is declared, is to be declared that he was the son of God the Lord, the Christ. I mean, that's what Paul, when he went preaching, he went to the synagogues and showed out of the law and the prophets that Christ is risen and the guy you killed was Christ. But he's risen now. Right. See, so, so if I they think believe that's... he's the son of, if they believe he's the son of God, then he gives his further revelation of the gospel. You know, okay, well, Christ died for your sins. And he raised for your eternal life. That's Paul's gospel. Right. So I think that um, when, when I'm talking about confession, you're obviously he's confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you're confessing that Jesus Christ is your Savior. He's, he's your personal atonement for your sin. Uh, that, that there's no other way to get to heaven other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think when I'm, when I'm talking about confession of sins and uh, confessing them to uh God... I, I think that that's tied into repentance because it's obviously a change of your heart attitude from your sins to Christ. And uh, when, when, when we're talking about Paul writing that, I think specifically it's, it's key to reference when he's actually writing that in the book of Acts. And uh, he writes it in Acts 26, uh, <laughs> verses 17 and 18 specifically. This is where he describes his conversion and his uh, commission, what God had given him to preach. Uh, the gospel specifically, but there were five things that were for Paul's ministry, five things that he was commissioned to do. And in verse 17, it says, Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, number one, to turn them from darkness to light, number two, and from the power of Satan of, uh, unto God, number three, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, number four, and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So I, I think that there, I, I, for me personally, I really don't, I don't think that um, you would repent if you didn't recognize the fact that you had a sin problem. You know what I mean? So do you have any thoughts yeah, on that? That's why I believe in repentance. Right. So, but you're saying that you don't have to confess your sins. No, I mean, I don't believe that. I mean, you're forgiven. You're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Well, see, and I'm not saying that if you don't confess every little sin that you're not saved. That's, I'm not even taking the position that if you don't confess your sins that you're not saved. What I'm saying is um, there's nothing wrong with confession of your sins to God. 
And some people take the position that if you're confessing your sins, then you may not be saved anyway because you don't understand what happened to you uh, when you were actually born again. So I don't know how far you would take that, but that's 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 where some people have taken it online, that if, if you have to confess your sins, then you're probably not saved anyways because you don't understand what happened to you the day you got saved. So what do you think about that? Well, I mean, if we're going to go, if we believe that we are... are Past, present, and future sins are all forgiven. Which, do you, you believe that? Yeah, absolutely. If save people, okay. So if we believe that, then why in the world, in 1 John, <clears throat> 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If he's already forgiven us, then why, oh, I mean, is there more forgiving that he does? See, and that's what I think is... Uh it is commonly taught that that John is teaching that if you don't confess your sins that you won't be saved. Is that what you believe he's saying? No. So you okay, so I don't know what would be the issue with what John is writing compared to what Paul writes then? Well, one is confess your sins and one is confess the Lord Jesus. Okay, and what I'm saying is you wouldn't confess the Lord Jesus if you didn't already recognize that you had a sin problem. But And maybe we're just getting into semantics here. Um, but but I, I just don't, I personally, I don't see any contradictions between for what Peter wrote, what John wrote, James, the book of Revelation. I don't think there's any, any contradictory uh, information between those books and what Paul writes. So... Um, first off, I'll, I'll just make that clear that I, I don't see, I don't believe there's any contradictions there, but um, obviously you would take the position that what Peter and John and James and Hebrews, that none of those are written to the church, that those are actually written to Jews that would be in the tribulation period. Is that correct? Yes, believing Israel. So I, I guess historically that makes it kind of tough for your position because historically they're actually writing to people during that time period in the first century that, that they're addressing. So they weren't in the tribulation period when they were writing those things. So how would you how would you apply that to a first century Jew as they're getting that information? Um, well, they're certainly about to go through the tribulation in Acts 2. Would you like to go there? Well, would, let, do we want to... I mean, just look at Peter's message. I mean... Even John the Baptist, John the Baptist, and Matthew three. <coughs> well, let's before we go there. Can you answer that question? Do you you really think that they were getting ready to go through the tribulation period in Acts two? Sure. Why do you believe that? Well, what did Peter say? Um, what do you say? Where's it at? But and if that's true, then Hebrews and James and the five epistles that John wrote, they wouldn't have had that information because it hadn't Surely. been written yet. Surely they did. They didn't. It wasn't written in Acts two. Oh, I mean, not in Acts two, but it's it's written between Acts one and Acts eight nine period. Acts eight to maybe eleven period. So the book of the the five epistles of, uh, that John wrote. He wrote those in 90 A.D. Well, that's that's historically the position, but that doesn't mean that that's... So you reject the historical view, even what Usher would say is when these books were written? Yeah. 
I would. Do you have any support for that? I mean, not really. Other than just like based on if Peter, James, and John are preaching the same thing to the same group of people, those books have to be written around a certain time period. Right, which is what I'm saying is these books were written after Acts chapter 2, historically to first century, what you think is just Jews only, uh, which I don't think is Jews only, and I know that we're going to get into it, but but what I'm hearing you say is this this completely contradicts my worldview, so I'm going to reject all the histor- historic, the historian's dating of when these books were rating, were written because it differs with my worldview. How How is that? I mean, does that seem coherent to you? I mean, yeah, I think it fits perfectly with what I believe, I mean. Right, but that's exactly what I'm saying. It, it it completely contradicts what you believe just based off of the historical timeline of when these books were written. Well, I mean, wasn't there a time in history where they didn't believe King David was real? I have no idea. You have no idea about that? Okay. No, I don't know anything about that. But, okay, I mean, so but, we'll move on. I mean, on. why are you going to trust... I mean, they teach the Big Bang in school. I mean, why? I mean, why in the world are you going to trust scholars anyway? Well, Usher wasn't just a scholar. I mean, Usher is the one who—that's Usher's date that he gives there in '98. Actually, and and Ruckman even dates it, probably even, uh, you know, somewhere around 85 AD. So within five yeah. years of what Usher does. So, but, anyways, um, where were we were going to Acts two? Yeah. All right. So I think. You would you would say that this is this is absolutely something that disagrees with what what Paul preached, is that correct? Preaching the day of the Lord is gonna come, yeah. In their time so period. So Paul didn't preach the day of the Lord is coming? Like is coming like soon? Yeah. No, I don't believe that. Okay. Um, but let's let's break this down. What did you want to bring up in Acts chapter two? I mean, because he's preaching wrath, just like John the Baptist preached wrath. Well, Paul preached wrath in First Thessalonians four. Preach what? It delivered us from the wrath to come. Yes. Okay. Well, Peter doesn't teach that. What does Peter teach? All right. <clears throat> if you go to, I think it's First Peter. Hebrews, James, First Peter, they all preach tribulation anguish. And wrath, all of them. They're gonna go through it. Their tr- their faith is gonna be tried. Like, where's it at? First uh, Peter one six, or, or even First Peter one four. Uh, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Yeah, that's that's the kingdom. That's well, that salvation. doesn't contradict anything that that Paul writes. But uh, my question is, what about Acts? Hold on, I didn't even get there yet. Oh, you're starting. To, okay. Yeah, I mean, but I'm just saying, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory and at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Amen, man. That can apply to the church, too. How is that? Uh, I mean, I'm, you don't yeah, think your faith is yeah. tried? Spiritually, yeah. I'm, I don't... I don't I, you could take any passage in the Bible and spiritualize it. No, I mean, literally, is your faith tried? I mean... 
I live in America, so I mean, yeah, I guess so. Okay, so it. I mean, on Twitter, sure. Uh, oh, at I mean, work. Peter even says that he's writing to Christians. So if you would take the position where he, that where does he say that at? Uh, let me pull it up real quick. First Peter four sixteen. No, is it? Yeah, it might be four sixteen actually. Yeah, it is. Any man suffer as a Christian? Yep. Yeah. yeah so. Just, just, just like the kingdom group can be called Christians, just like the body of Christ can be called Christians. But where are they called? See, in Acts eleven twenty six, that's contradictory, though, because Acts eleven twenty six says they were who's first that, who's, called. Who's there in Acts eleven twenty six? Christians. No. Who's there in Acts? It 11, literally 26? says, "For they were first called Christians in Antioch." Verse twenty five. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So who's there? A bunch of Christians. Disciples. Paul's there is what I'm saying. Yeah, but it, it, so look what it says. It says, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Okay, so Paul was there. And when they found him, he brought him into Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year assembled themselves with the church. So, obviously, when we talk about the church, we talk about being people being put in Christ. Paul even says in Acts chapter, I believe it's chapter 9, that uh, there were others that were put in Christ before him. So, if that's the you case, if you are put in 16. Christ, let me, just give me a chance to finish this thought, and then I'll, I'll hand it back over to you, but... Um, I, I think that in order for your position to be consistent, one, you would have to say that Peter is writing to Jews who had become Christians under uh, Paul's ministry, and now Peter is not writing to Christians, but he's writing to Jews in the first century Jewish sense that they're going to go through the tribulation period. So, it, one, I see a contradiction there that you wouldn't be post-trib or... Uh, You'd have to be post-trib in that sense because um, Peter's writing to Christian Jews that you believe are going to go through the tribulation just because the epistles that Peter writes are epistles that are doctrinally addressed to tribulation Jews. Uh, but two, I think that you've got a problem there because, um, what was that other thought that I had? Um, that people are put in Christ before Paul. So you would have to take the position that... Um, People are put in Christ before Paul, but not before Acts chapter 2. So there's a period of time where people are put in Christ before Paul gets converted and gets his commission, and uh, but yet they're not part of the body of Christ. So what do you do with those two things? One, the tribulation aspect of Peter writing to Christians, and then two, people being put in Christ before Paul and not actually being part of the body of Christ. Um, well, if you go to Romans 16, where he says that at, <clears throat> he says in, what is it, verse 7? Yeah. Salute uh, Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, so they're Jews, and my fellow prisoners, who were of note among the apostles. Or who's the apostles? Well, so kinsmen is, is just someone that he's related to. You know, it could be a close relationship, your kin. Um, which, they could be Jews, ethnically. There's no problem with that. Um, but obviously, you would say that Romans 16, which is interesting, you would, you would think that Ro you would say that Romans 16 is without a doubt written to the body of Christ. It applies to the body of Christ doctrinally. Um, but yet, 
when when you're disc- when you're when you're talking about these two guys here, um, which are in the Lord. No, that's not actually what. No, that's that's not the reference that I was looking for. Um. Oh yeah, it is verse seven. Who also were in Christ uh, before me. So he says to you know, salute those. Man. They were apostles to the church. There were seven apostles to the church, and uh, those those two were part of it. And Matthew ten gives you the list of the apostles to the church. But, anyways, what would you what did what, you have to say? What about church? That? What church? The church in Matthew. Matthew ten. Yeah, yeah. But what church is that? Is that the church today or? Because there's a church before Paul. Yeah, the church where Jesus dies. Well, there was I, you. Some people have broken it down and said that there were seven churches based on the way that you define a church, and you obviously would get that from the Greek word um, ecclesiastia, or what is it, ecclesia? Um, ecclesia, which simply means an assembly or a gathering together of people. Uh, you know, and and I have no problem with that, and you know, but but what I'm saying is. Um, the the problem is for you that you have to identify when these guys were put in Christ. So even if you say that these guys were in a different church before the church age, then it, it still creates a problem for you because they were in Christ. So in, in order for you to take that position, you would have to say everyone in the Old Testament was in Christ. So what do you do with that? <laughs> um, well, first of all, are these guys in Christ according to Paul's gospel? I don't have any doubt about it. I mean, the Bible says it right there. They were in Christ before. How are they? How are they in Christ according to Paul's gospel before Paul even gets saved? Well, that's my. That's that's not a problem for me. I think that's a problem for you. I, I'm saying that they were in Christ. You're saying that it, it's Paul, impossible for him to be before Paul is saved. There's no Paul's gospel. It's not. That's the problem that you've got. I think it, let's let's look in Luke chapter 24 real quick. And and I think this is this is really where it, it gets pretty hairy um, when it breaks when when you want to when you're talking about your position that Paul preached a different gospel than what the other the other apostles did just because mm-hmm. he went to the Gentiles and the other apostles went to the Jews which they both preached to Gentiles and Jews together but we're talking about their primary commission and in in Luke 24 verse 44 this is Jesus speaking he says and he said unto them these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. Let me switch his camera back to me. And he says, While I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened ye their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name, uh, in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, which began at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And ye are mm-hmm. witnesses of these things. So, when 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 I say the other apostles were preaching the same exact thing as as what Paul did, you disagree with that uh, because Paul says this is my gospel. So I think that when when we're really breaking it down, um, it's it's what you would call the the um, the d- dual inference fallacy, the double inference fallacy, um, which means that just because he says it applies to him personally doesn't mean it can't apply to somebody else at the same time. So if it's Paul's gospel, it's not just his gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which it's also called. It's the gospel of the grace of God, which it's also called. It's also my gospel because it's my God. It's me personally. This is what God has given me to do as well: preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 
which Jesus Christ did to his disciples when he was resurrected. So he appeared to them. He went through from the beginning of Genesis all the way up to the resurrection of Christ, the types, the samples, the examples, uh, and the anti-type, all the things that were Christ in the Old Testament showing this is who Jesus Christ is and this is what the gospel is. And I don't see any contradiction there that this is what Paul was preaching as well. So what's your take on that? Um, okay. Well, first of all, I mean, where do you want me to start? Because I didn't even answer the in Christ part. <laughs> yeah, start. So so that's what I wanted to establish that because I, I think that it's it's pretty important to understand that, um, one, people were put in Christ before Paul. And Paul, and you corrected me appropriately on Romans 16. I, I think I said Acts chapter, I don't know, 9. But you're right. There's, there's in Romans 16. He says there's, there's other, other guys that are put in Christ before him. So yeah, if you could start there, define what in Christ means. Is it the body of Christ? Is it not the body of Christ? And uh, tie that into what we're talking about here to transition into the gospel the apostles preached compared to what Paul preached. All right. So when Jesus comes to the earth to preach uh, the gospel, of the kingdom, and his earthly ministry, he's trying to set up the kingdom to Israel. Through a covenant, the new covenant. He's so the vine. Can I? I won't stop you every now, every time you take a breath. I promise. I'll let you finish. You let me finish a lot of my thoughts. But do you think that the new covenant, Hebrews chapter eight, was established when Jesus Christ came uh, in his in his first advent um, to establish the kingdom with the nation of Israel, um, or do you think that's still future? That's future. Okay. That's definitely future. Go ahead. But anyway, so um, at John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father's husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purchased it, that it may bring uh, forth more fruit. Okay, so we're in Christ by the gospel, right? Yep. If we don't bear fruit... We're taken out of Christ. Uh, this is talking corporately, not individually. So in in John fifteen, um, he's talking about the branch. He's not talking about the individual leaves, if that's what you want to call it. But let me turn the camera back over here. Um, in in John fifteen, you've got two different branches, and it's it's illustrated in uh, Romans eleven, um, where the one branch was cut off and another branch grafted in its place. Um, another branch grafted in, I shouldn't say in its place. Uh, because we didn't, the church doesn't replace Israel, but yet it's distinct from Israel. Israel was in Christ as a separate branch, so it's a different corporate. It's a corporate thing. So when when the the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament saints corporately as as a nation, the nation of Israel, um, when they corporately decided to break the commandments of God based off of the wrong heart attitude towards. The sacrifices that they had done, they see, they had got to the point that they thought, well, if we just bring the sacrifice, if we just do this, it'll appease God. That's all he cares about is a sacrifice, and we'll get to heaven that way, whatever. And and God, God in, in Isaiah 11 says that he abhors it, that he hates it, that he hate, he doesn't desire the sacrifice. Hebrews 9, he says that the blood of bulls and goats can take away no sins, that God didn't even have any desire in those. Um, and, and that's why we needed a more perfect sacrifice. But they had become so ritualistic that they had gotten away from the hard attitude aspect of, of the sacrifice that God had requested. So what he did was 
Um, he's talking about the, the, the fruit that the vine that's not producing fruit, that would be the corporate nation of Israel, that they're just putting out bad fruit and saying, hey, you know what, bring the sacrifice, whatever, you'll be good to go, don't worry about your heart attitude. It's like somebody saying, you know what, you you tell God, like, hey, I'm believing in Jesus uh, so that I can sin and do whatever I want, when that's not the case. It's the wrong heart attitude for wanting to get saved in the first place. It's you weren't, You're not bearing any fruit. So it's not saying that an individual Christian... If you don't ever win a soul to Christ, that you're you're going to go to hell. Um, but what's your take on my response there? So you you're saying that the branch in John 15 is corporate and not singular. Yes. Okay. What do you do with verse five? I am the vine, ye are the branches. He singular that abideth in me, nine him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man singular abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. And it's withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Yeah, so we're still talking about the nation of Israel, whether it's a singular or a plural there, because that man establishes the corporate man. You can have many individuals within that corporate man. That's why it's saying branches. He's identifying the branches within. So the best way that I can explain it is... uh, um, either way that you look at it, it's still it's still the corporate man, which is Israel. And even in, in the book of Exodus, God says, my son, Israel. So um, it would be a reference to the man. Um, I, I don't have any problem with that. I think even in the book of Revelation, um, you've got, you've got uh, the nation of Israel being referred to as a man. So anyways, that would be my take on that. I don't have any See, and if you take it, if you if you take, I, I think if you take it too far, then what you're really saying is, if you don't produce fruit as a Christian, then God can cut you off and you'll go to hell, which means you can lose your salvation. Um, yeah. And I, what I'm saying is, the people in John 15, they're abiding in Christ, according to a covenant. And those people would be, who? The apostles, the little flock. Adronicus Jr. You know, there was little flock people in Rome. But I, I think that Paul's drawn a distinction there because he's obviously he's obviously saying to salute these two guys that are in Christ before him, right? So I, I don't think that Paul would have identified, because obviously Paul had a conversion story, right? He even said that, you know, he was, he was the... Uh, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he's a sinner of sinners. He's the greatest of all these things. So if if Paul is is really going to make a difference between between the branch in John 15 as the corporate nation of Israel being in Christ, then he wouldn't have said that those guys referenced were in Christ before him because he was already in Christ, right? You see what I'm saying? So if if you're really taking the position that Paul as an as an apostle before his conversion you would have to say that nobody before Paul, even Paul himself, was in Christ because of John 15 and the position that you're taking here. So what do you do with that? I'm saying, I'm saying Paul was in, in Christ's body as a corporate group called the body of Christ, and, Jun, and Adronicus and Junia are in Christ according to believing Israel, the nation of Israel, the little flock. So, so I guess that that makes uh, that to, brings up a more interesting question: is is do you believe you obvi- uh, you do believe that there's there's a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles? And Paul preached today. 
Well, that's what I'm asking. Is no. do you believe that? Okay, so you believe that Jews have to get saved just like Gentiles today? Yes. So yeah. why do you believe it was different then? Because for one, <coughs> the kingdom offer is still being offered after Jesus' ascension. Well, notice we're still talking. We're trying to get back to Acts two, and I, I think we're going in a roundabout way to get back to Acts two. Um, but go ahead. I won't interrupt you. In Acts chapter one, verse six, when they therefore were come together, and this is the twelve apostles. Well, actually, this is the hundred twenty. I'm pretty sure in the upper room. But um, it says, when they were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will at this, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times uh, or the seasons which the Father put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, people want to take, what is it, Matthew 20, 19 and 20, and then verse 8. Like it's the same gospel because they're going from Jerusalem and then to all the world. But you have to remember in in the Bible or in the Gospels, Jesus Christ said himself, You shall not uh, have gone over preaching to the cities of Israel until the Son of Man be come. So they, they wouldn't even have preached done uh, stopped preaching their gospel until Jesus Christ has come back. Okay, so this great so mission is that when Christ comes back on the earth he establishes the new covenant, takes away Israel's sins. They become kings and priests to the nations, to Gentiles. Okay, I, I understand. I understand your position on that. I, I think that we still have to establish what the difference is between what you, you're saying their gospel is compared to what what Paul's gospel is. Okay. So what I, what I'm saying is, the kingdom being preached is not the gospel itself. The gospel itself was was what what John the Baptist was preaching to them. There's the, the Savior is coming to the world, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, uh, come to take away the sins of the world. So I I think that that's exactly what, what he was preaching. He's talking about sinners needing a Savior. The Messiah has come. Genesis 3.15 is the original promise of a Savior who would come. And, uh, and, and, and everybody throughout the entire Bible believed that their Savior was going to come. Even Job wrote that his Redeemer lives and he would see him face to face. Um, so I, I don't have any issue with with saying that I completely disagree with your position. I understand your position, but I'd like to draw it out a little bit further and, and really nail down what, what do you think the gospel that they had preached to them was versus the gospel that Paul preached in, and we'll go from there. Uh, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That a physical, Can you define that? Little, a physical little earthly kingdom would come down from heaven. I mean, he's... That's just, hey, there's a kingdom coming. You think that's how people got saved? Hey, there's a kingdom coming. Believe the kingdom's no, coming. Because the word gospel means good news. The word right, but we're talking about salvation. We're talking about salvation, though. We're not just talking about good news of a kingdom. Well, their, their salvation is that kingdom. Okay, in order for them to get that kingdom, they have to endure to the end. They have to believe on the name of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah. You know, who is the liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Antichrist. They have to keep God's commandments. That's what Peter preaches, or Peter writes in his epistles. That's what James writes in his epistles. Hebrews, uh, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold our, our confidence and steadfastness unto the end. 
John says, uh, this is his commandment, that we believe on the name of the Son of God and uh, love, uh, love one another as he has commanded. Okay, so you're saying you're... You're, you're saying that they've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. What does that mean? They have to believe on his name, that he is the Messiah, the Christ. Okay, so they believe that he's the Messiah in Christ. You, they have to endure to the end. The end of what? That time period. So what if they die before that time period? If they die for the, if they love not their wives to the death, they, um, they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They get white robes, just like Revelation 12, or Reve well, I don't know Revelation 12, but the book of Revelation says. They are resurrected uh, at the judgment of the nations. That's the way I put it. When Christ comes back on the earth and sets up his little, uh, literal kingdom on the earth, they're resurrected and they are judged uh, for being martyrs for Christ, for not loving their lives unto, uh, unto the death. Okay, so they have to they have to persevere. They have to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They, what else do they have to do? They have to keep the keep the commandments. What are the commandments? Keep his commandments. I mean, he said. Uh, I mean, basically, it's to love one another, and basically that would be because if if you go to James, but that's not the commandments James, of the law. They're New Testament. This New Testament commandments. Oh, so, it, so there's. But the law was still in effect when Jesus Christ was sure. on earth. Okay. Sure. So you're saying that God but didn't was Jesus say a new commandment I give unto you that you what? love one another as I have loved you? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. But so is that something physical that they have to do? Well, the way that they love each other is. When I can read it, because these are tribulational epistles, and you can tell just by the like what it's saying. If I can get to James, because everyone pulls Which, out James. I disagree too. with you. I don't believe that they are tribulation epistles. I don't believe uh, that. Um, what was I going to say? I don't believe that um, that they worked to earn their salvation. I don't think that works was incorporated in the Old Testament and it will be incorporated in the in the tribulation period in order for them to have salvation. I, I, I don't believe that. So that's I'd like to draw that out a little bit, but um but before I'll, I'll let you answer this and then I'll move to the next question because I think we've kind of beat this one to a, a pulp. Are you asking her? No, I was saying, yeah, just finish your thought on that. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Um, if you go to James chapter two, if I can find it, where he talks about. Oh, <coughs> well, first of all, he's talking about uh, verse twelve. So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. And he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath uh, showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. What the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be, uh, be naked, and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? 
Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. So that right there is an example of them uh, loving one another because if you put this in tribulation, people who are taking the mark of the beast are the people who are buying and selling and getting food. But the people who believe that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Messiah, and he's not, the Antichrist is not the Messiah, they're going to be starving, and they're going to be naked. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 25, when he establishes his kingdom, and the judgment of the nations happens, Matthew 25, he says... When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and shall and then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So that's when he's in his kingdom. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd would divide the sheep from the goats. He shall set up the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when we uh, when we saw thee, and hunger, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink, when uh, when saw we uh, when saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee. And then he says in verse 40, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So, I mean, what is he talking about there? Because that's definitely t the time of Jacob's trouble. Yeah, good question. So, um, I wouldn't say that James is a reference to the time of J Jacob's it trouble. It connects perfectly. But let me, let, me, let me finish my point. In James 2, I, I think that you take it out of context what the, the context is regarding faith and works, all right? And I think that it, it has to be established, especially when you when you look at verse 17 and 18. He says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So what is this? Is it a demonstration of faith to God? Is it a dem demonstration of faith to man? Is it an expectation of what God uh, requires for a man to be saved, that this is what God's looking for? Is faith and works? No, it's not. It, this is clearly a demonstration of two men trying to decide whether or not somebody's saved. This is the very conversation that we're having right now. How is a person saved in the Old Testament? How is a person saved in the New Testament? How is somebody saved in the tribulation period? James is clearly laying out, I'm going to demonstrate to you my faith by my works. So I'm going to show you how you can know and, and be settled for sure that I'm a saved person, and that's by me sh showing you my works. And, and so he's saying also... If you don't have works, then I can pretty much tell you you're not saved. Does that mean that if you don't have works that you're not saved? I don't believe so. I, I believe that the thief on the cross didn't have any works, and yet he was saved. I believe uh, I believe there was a lot of... Uh, that every single person from the beginning of Genesis until the end of the book of Revelation never did one single thing to lift a finger to earn their salvation. They didn't contribute to it at all, not even a little bit. Um, and, and I think James is a prime example of that. But, but one thing that you quoted in Matthew 25 uh, at the judgment of the nations where he says, uh, as, as 
to who you did the least of these you did did unto me, that doesn't mean that you earned your salvation. That doesn't mean that they're earning their salvation. That just means that they're helping by helping the least of these that you're you're doing you're just as equally doing it to God. And I think that's interesting to point out that you you actually you say that because Jesus said the same thing to Paul in Acts chapter nine, where he told him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? How can we say that Paul was persecuting the body of, not the body of Christ, that because the body of Christ wasn't around yet, but Jesus uses the same exact example in Acts 9 as he does in Matthew 25, where he tells Paul, you're persecuting me, and that is the body of Christ. So I don't, I don't know how you would respond to that, but that's my, re, that's my take on it. But um, if you want to respond, you can. Well, I, I just Go ahead. And then I've got a couple more things that I want to bring up, then I think right, we can so wrap it up. At the, at the judgment of the nations, what happens before Jesus Christ comes? So you've, you've got the proverbial line drawn in the sand, all right? You've got the goats, you've got the sheep, and uh, everybody has that. a choice on which side they want to take on the line. You can either be a goat, you can either be a sheep, but this is your choice. And uh, that's the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25. In a nutshell. Right. Well, I'm talking about before the Son of Man comes in his glory, what's happening? Well, you've got the tribulation period, there's no doubt. So you're, say so you're saying the body of Christ is in the tribulation? I'm saying that just like what we illustrated uh, back in... Uh, I'm saying they're in Christ according to a covenant. I don't, yeah, they were, they were definitely grafted into... There's no, I don't see any reason why the tree... The body so, is not in Christ according to a covenant. What the what? I'm the body of Christ. You. We're not in Christ according to a covenant. We're in Christ because of the gospel. No, I, I, I don't have any. I'm not disagreeing with you on the new covenant and who's who's a partaker. I believe that the covenants all apply to the nation of Israel. But that's not that's not really what I'm bringing up here. Well, I was just saying because you said Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That's the same me in Matthew 25. That doesn't mean that he's in Christ. Those are in Christ according to the gospel that Paul uh, had. That's what I'm saying. So, okay. And it, all right, but you said I took uh, James 2 out of context. And I, I put it in the context of them being in the tribulation. If you read in Revelation 14, it says, uh, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Their smoke, uh, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, nor, uh, who worship the beast in his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, or the faith of Jesus. So, I mean, they're being patient through that time to not worship the beast and his image. Yeah, but it doesn't say that being patient earned their salvation. It just says, here's the ones who, um, here's the ones who persevered, here's the ones who believed in Christ. It sure does. It, it has to, no, that Revelation fourteen twelve definitely, they endured to the end to receive their salvation. So, uh, what, salvation but, but it's not accounting for the other people who the didn't. Last time. Uh, let me, I, I think that we've we've hit this pretty good. Maybe if we do another broadcast, we can come back to this. 
Um, I've got a, I've got a couple, I've got a lot more questions, but I've, I've basically got one main question that I want to ask you, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll shut it down for the night. I think that we're going on about an hour and fifteen minutes right now, and uh, we'll go from there. But, um, anyways, I, I think that you've, we've done a, pr- a pretty good job of being cordial together, and it's been, it's really been a good conversation. Um, this is kind of the, the meth, the style of what I'm shooting for when we do episodes like this when we, I put out the pop, podcast in order to have a conversation like this where it's it's cordial we're graceful to each other we're, we're laying out our positions I'm trying to understand you I'm not just trying to talk past you I know sometimes it can seem like that but I really do want to understand your position and uh, I, I think it's the same way around as well but one thing that I, I do and I, I'd like to just get some clarification on what you believe when it comes to uh, the Lord's Supper and uh, what was the other thing that I had here yeah, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Do you think that that's something that uh, we as Christians should observe? Um, Paul only speaks to the Lord's Supper one time. Um, he puts it as I think he puts it as like just a meal, basically, like together as a meal. Because he says, when you're come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. But you have to also like discern why you're eating that thing, because people were coming in there and they were just hungry and thirsty, eating and drinking. They weren't discerning the Lord's body, and they ate damnation to themselves. So, so I mean, yeah, Christians, yeah, like, I mean, if they want to observe the Lord's Supper, I mean, he said, do it as oft until the Lord comes. So, <coughs> um, which would obviously be a continuation. I'm not an Acts 28 or is what I'm saying. So you, you would observe the Lord's Supper and, or, yeah, and participate yeah. in that. Okay. Um, what about baptism? Do you think baptism is necessary today? Not for salvation, obviously, but baptism. What do you think baptism is? Uh, baptism is a... It's in, written in the Old Testament. It's for priests. That's why Jesus Christ was baptized, because he's the high priest. All the nation of Israel, all of Judea, came out to John to be baptized because when he sets up that kingdom, they will be kings and priests. Paul baptized people because he became, in 1 Corinthians 9, if I can get there, he says, And I I think you can notice I'm not really giving a response back um, on either the Lord's Supper or baptism. I'll I'll give a brief summation on it uh, once you finish. I just want to make sure that you get your point across. He says in verse um, 19, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became uh, as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not uh, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. Uh, to them, uh, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might, be, uh, I might by all means save some. <laughs> so I believe Paul water baptized a lot of the times to show that the uh, Gentiles to be identified with Christ. They are partakers of the gospel. And if you look in, uh, what is it? 
think it's Acts chapter 22. Um, let me see if I can find this. Oh, when he comes to, he's talking about when he comes to Ananias. This is in one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law. So he knows the law. And he tells Paul, why terrorists shall rise and be baptized and wash away thine sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That has something to do with law, man. That has something to do with that kingdom age, that kingdom gospel, the kingdom group, water baptism. Paul says there's one baptism. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. And in, in Romans 6, he says, Do you not we are baptized into Jesus Christ? And then he says we are baptized into his death. Okay, if we're baptized into Jesus' death, I mean, Jesus didn't drown in water. He's talking about the death of the old man. I'm crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live, and yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. That's what he's talking about, that baptism. Okay, so I, I think that we've got a few things clear. We've covered a lot of different different topics tonight. Uh, maybe we can, we can get in some more the next time that we do one of these. Um, and, and break it down a little bit further. But I think what we've we've discovered is you would observe the Lord's Supper. You don't believe baptism is uh, should apply to Christians today. That you don't have a problem with repentance. You do have you don't believe that you should have to confess your sins to God, um, or that you should uh, yeah just confess your sins to God. So well, we've I'll comment on that. I'll, I'll comment on that. Yeah, yeah. I believe that when you sin, I mean, people acknowledge, people that are saved, they acknowledge when they sin. Like, they know when they sinned. I'm just saying you don't have you don't have to say, you know, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me of my sins. You don't have to ask him for that. You just say, thank goodness that you died for my sins. Yeah, but I... See, that I, it was. And, and that's, my, that's the only thing I believe. What my that's response what was... Said. He said, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ that he would deliver me from this death. See... Uh, what my response was to that is there's there's no problem with you confessing your sins to God. I mean, there's nothing wrong with you even saying, like, God put this under the blood. You know he's already put it under the blood. You know he's already forgiven you. But I don't have any problem with somebody saying, like, in the moment, like, hey, you know what? God, I'm real sorry about this. Like, make sure that one's under the blood. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not that you, you're doubting that it's, that it's under the blood or anything like that. But anyway, so... Um, I, I think we've got a lot of things cleared up. Uh, baptism, Lord's Supper, repentance, um, confession. What else do we talk about? Um, I, I want to make this clear for those of you who are listening. I don't believe that uh, baptism in any part of the entire Bible ever plays any role or um, has any contribution to your salvation. I don't believe that any of your works have any contribution to your salvation. I don't believe that anything in the Old Testament, any Old Testament saints did actually contribute to their salvation. I don't believe that anything in uh, the tribulation period contributes anything to their salvation when it comes to their works. Uh, you, you see things like enduring to the end. It, it's never in a context of earning their salvation. It just says uh, typically it's a reference to a reward, uh, which is a, a reference uh, to the martyr's crown of enduring to the end. So it's a reward. Just like the works of the Christian, uh, they don't earn our salvation. It's, it's a reference to our rewards and in, in, in the service that we do for Christ, and that's not even based off of our works. It's still based off of our hard attitude towards what we're doing for God. So either way, God doesn't care about your works in, the, in as much as he does about your sacrifice of your heart um, towards what you're doing, just like he did in the Old Testament. 
Um, and in fact, I don't believe that if somebody just simply brought an atonement for their sins in the Old Testament, that they would have been forgiven if their heart wasn't right. And I think that God makes that pretty clear in his conversation with uh, the Pharisees. So um, anyways, I, I, that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Um, I, we've covered a lot here, and perhaps we can schedule another one sometime soon. But um, Corn, I'm going to give you the last word, man. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, man, appreciate it. Um, hope we can do this sometime again. Uh, we'll have to get Salt and Jeff on here. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I've tried to make it happen. I've talked to Jeff. I, for whatever reason, it's starting to get kind of, you know, a lot. Of, it's just kind of some petty stuff going on there in the conversations that I've had with him. But I, I'm, I'm willing to have him on as long as we can, you know, be cordial like what we did tonight. Yeah, bring on Sola, guy. I want to ask him some questions. <laughs> oh, Sola? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, we'll see, man. He blocked me, man. I just wanted to ask him some questions. Oh, oh, like, oh, okay, so I got one more. If you guys are still viewing, this is what I really, if, if I don't ever get to talk to you again, Corn, I wanted to ask you this. It was kind of confusing in your conversation today uh, with uh, our good Catholic buddy, Ron. He was asking you about the Trinity, okay? And, and I've, I've, I wanted to get your take on it real quick. Uh, here, here's what the conversation was. It's a little unclear. I'd like to get it cleared up. Ron says, anybody want to talk about the Trinity? You said, three persons, one essence? Question mark. He says, three persons, one God. You say, how are three people, one God? And he says, I didn't say people. I said, person. Do you think Christ is not God? Do you think the Holy Spirit is not God? He said, yes, they're all God. I believe all three are one. First John 5, 7. Do you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? You said, probably not the same way you would. And then he says, well, so where would you derive the doctrine of the Trinity? Obviously, he's trying to point it back towards the Catholic Church that you wouldn't have the Trinity unless the Catholic Church gave it to you. But um, what, I'm, what I want to get to is one thing that gets kind of hairy with me is you say, well, Christ was also a man. He died. He rose with a new body. So two things that I had a question about. Do you think that Jesus, when he was here on earth in a physical body and he resurrected, that his resurrected body was a completely different body than the body that, that he was crucified with. That's question mm-hmm. one. I mean, I think the body that he was resurrected with didn't have blood. Okay, but it's the same body. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell because you got... When he came in his earthly body before he died, people looked at him and knew who he was. But then he, after he arose, like you got... Mary, and she said he looked like a gardener. A what? A gardener. The gardener. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you said a, a you gardener. You know, so it's, it's just weird stuff like that. Like, you can't really tell. Um, so, okay. And uh, one other thing, and, and he referenced it back to Isaiah, that you believe that Jesus Christ is God the Father, that he's not distinct from the Father, that he is the incarnate Father. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I believe God was manifest in the flesh. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's that's what I believe. So you believe? I, mean, so you, I don't believe because because I don't believe God the Son was manifest in the flesh. It says God was manifest in the flesh. There's only one God, the Father. Well, what about God the Holy Spirit? It wasn't manifest in the flesh. Well, okay. So I've got a lot of questions on that. Maybe we can pick up next time. But I will say this. In, in, in my understanding of the Trinity, and it can be pretty confusing if you want to break it down, three distinct persons within one 
Uh, three distinct individuals within one person. So I, that, I think that's how you would word it. Uh, there's a lot of controversy on how Are you, you should word it. I believe. Well, hey, let me let me finish this and then I'll ask you. But I, I think that when when we talk about Jesus Christ being distinct from God the Father and distinct from God the Holy Spirit, I, I think it's like distri- describing your body, soul, and spirit. They're they're three they're three different things, but they make up the same body. So when I talk about Jesus Christ, I don't think that He's God the Father manifest in the flesh. And when we talk about God, I think that the Bible consistently interchanges references to God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, all three. Um, as a reference to God, and uh, I, I don't have any problem with that. They're they're three and one, just like we are three and one. But um, I I don't th- when we we look at the book of Isaiah and it says um, when it's talking about the everlasting Father, I, I I don't I don't think that that is a reference to Jesus Christ being God the Father manifest in the flesh. I think that that is a reference to Jesus Christ being one with God the Father, and I think we can trace that back to Proverbs eight, and it gets a lot deeper from there, but. Anyways, that's my take on it to make it uh, more complicated. But let's wrap it up with you, and then we'll shut her down. All right. What didn't you say you had a you wanted to, you said do you want to know what I think on the Trinity? No, I was asking when you said uh, three separate what identities in one person. Is that what you said? Um, I think I said individuals. I might have said identities. I might have said both. I don't know. But is that is that what you believe about the Trinity, or is that or are you saying that's what I believe about it? No, I was saying that's what I believe. I don't know what you. I, oh. I don't know how you would word it. Yeah, I I believe. I mean, I believe God is one person with a body, soul, and spirit, just like we're one person with body, soul, and spirit. But the body's not the soul, and the soul's not the spirit. Yeah. Okay, so we'll... people think that's weird because they're like, no, they each have their own body, soul, and spirit. Like, no, that's that's getting too like. Hey, Ruckman believed that. Polytheist. Huh? Ruckman believed that. See, because he 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 switches on and off on his. Uh, belief about the Trinity, and that's that's another thing you just can't nail down, man. You can't nail down the nature of God. Yeah, I don't think you can do it. It's tough, man. It's uh, it it's you're trying to make something that's infinite and metaphysical into a finite physical thing, and it just it's something tough to wrap your head around, at least for me, anyway. So, anyways, um, Corin, good to meet you in person as close as as much as we can meet in, in person. Um, thanks for coming on. It's been good. It's been cordial. I, uh, we've got some differences. I think some things that it, next time, rather than hit a bunch of different subjects, we can just nail one thing and say, let's talk about this and we'll hit it for an hour. Um, and do something like that. And it might be a little more profitable. And that way we're not jumping around, um, as much, uh, which that's, that's me. I kind of wanted this to be an interview style of conversation and just asking each other questions and, and, uh, giving some answers on any subject that we wanted to being as broad as we want to, but Anyways, thanks again. We'll do it again sometime. Have a good night, and I'm going to cut to my closing scene here for those of you who are still watching. Go from there. So, anyways, guys, that was uh, tonight. You know, been a little while since we had our last episode, but uh, thanks for sticking with us and bearing it out. Hyperdispensationalism. I'm not 100% sure where I would classify Corin when it comes to his position on dispensationalism. It's kind of a mixture of uh, classic and hyper and... uh, Ultra in some spots when it comes to the ordinances and observing. I don't really know, but you know what? I'm not real big on um, trying to put somebody in a category, anyways. Um, it does. It doesn't make that big of a difference to me. But anyways, good conversation, a lot of fun. We'll do it again sometime soon. God bless, guys. Have a good evening.